You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. The time of the evening where you join us on your popular slot, Legal Talk, and Alhamdulillah Legal Talk, a program that is for you to listen as we bring in our experts. And Alhamdulillah, this evening we have one of your favorites that is our very own Hafiz Muhammad, attorney Hafiz Muhammad Kubadia. And Alhamdulillah, besides being a world-class da'i, yeah, he is a uh, you know uh, an attorney that is well respected and uh, you know what do you call it to the tapestry of time. He is a proven entity. Uh, let me welcome you and uh, our attorney Hafiz Muhammad Kuvadia with a hearty assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. And tell me, uh, how are you doing this fine people evening? Waalaikum salam warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. My brother Shafa Jazakallah is always. For the warm welcome and for the warm Well, we seem to have uh, lost uh, Muhammad there. Perhaps, uh, Muhammad, uh, you know, there's some gremlins coming through or maybe uh, there's a speaker on or your jack came out. I don't know what's happening. But uh, as soon as uh, Muhammad gets online, uh, we'll be chatting to him. And alhamdulillah, you know, there's so much happening in the world uh, today. You know, as you know, that Muhammad... Uh, our attorney also had uh, gone oh. to uh, Holy Land. Uh, Mah- uh, oh. Muhammad, you're back. Okay, it seems like our connection is very poor indeed. I don't know what's happening. I hope you got your yeah, wife. Okay, my my side is... Can you hear me, Shafat? I can hear you, but you're, you're breaking up very okay. badly. Uh, have you got your Wi-Fi on? I don't or, know why. Or you're running on bundles? It's been on <laughs> Wi-Fi, but we, it's, it's on Wi-Fi. All right, uh, it's sounding better now. It sounds Is it better, good. maybe? But so tell me something. Um, let's start from the beginning. Let's not oh, break it up. Okay, this. let's. Uh, yeah, from the beginning. Uh, welcoming our uh, attorney Hafiz Muhammad Kubadia to uh, his uh, slot on uh, legal files. And with every fortnight he comes through. And Alhamdulillah, as I said, he's a world class dai. He's someone uh, that uh, we embrace and celebrate on this platform. He's also a proven entity when it comes uh, to his profession. And Alhamdulillah, he can handle a medley of topics. And besides that, he gives you an added value of his uh, da'wah prowess, uh, Hafiz Muhammad, attorney Kuvadia. And also, yeah, the pious and sagacious listeners of Amarka Sahaba. One more time, let me welcome you all with a hearty assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And tell me, how are you doing this fine, beautiful evening, uh, Muhammad? Alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Jazakallah for your warm welcome and for the graciousness of the Durban hospitality. Uh, I'm doing well, alhamdulillah, in a cold Johannesburg. Well, you know, someone said, I leave my posy for Josie, but you don't get cozy in uh, the cold. I believe, uh, you know, the weather forecast is going to be freezing that end on Monday, they say. You'll be on nine and others may be in the minus and so forth. But, uh, uh, Mohammed, I mean, you have acclimatized uh, to your part of your world. And, uh, you know, perhaps you're used to that cold. You know, when the Durban, I won't say Durban nights, when our brothers from Durban come through, then they say, but your book is so cold. I say, this is good weather we're experiencing now. So what we consider to be Nice, decent weather is extremely cold for our Durban visitors. Yes, but it does get cold sometimes. And next week's going to be a good example of some cold weather ahead of us. they even talking about snow in Gauteng, and that's very rare, you know that. You look forward to the snow too, and uh, you have a balyar lekker in the snow. <laughs> On a balyar in the water, you know, the lovely waves come and we get in there and we dive in and so forth. But anyway, uh, you know, it's Sazin fever. Yeah, uh, you know, Hajj, a lot of things have happened. Uh, you know, uh, many stories coming through, uh, you know, Nalidi Pando and they talk about uh, uh, what's his name, the uh, Rasul. I, I remember when he became premier of uh, Cape, I was the first guy to interview him on CI radio, literally. Uh, 10 minutes before his inauguration and he took my call. He said, I'll do it for you, but hey, I'm walking, I'm walking towards the thing and Alhamdulillah, he did it. So that's a part of history. But, uh, you know, um, you've been uh, to the Holy Land and, you know, you noticed that uh, uh, there's also stories of uh, the Americans are using AI, artificial intelligence, uh, you know, monitoring American da'is that are there 
and you know whom they find uh, uh, outspoken against the American regime, and they've been using that technology there. Also, India doing all the uh, bookings and also people from Britain and so forth. But uh, you know, massive delays. Uh, people are disappointed. Some paid the fees and couldn't even get to the Holy Lands, and then you get the South African uh, debacle coming through. Uh, you know, the same story uh, year in and year out. You know, Mohammed, you've been there. You've been part of a delegation. That, you know, you have taken care of uh, you know the pilgrims. Talk to us about the, the scenario. You as uh, someone, you know, in a neutral position now. How do you look at the whole thing? Gee, so it's uh, Hajj has always been a center of much controversy and much disappointment, especially in South Africa. I think we need to look at things um, in the current day dilemma that we at. So what we understand is earlier in the in the year, Turco established a ministerial Hajj committee headed by, as you mentioned, Ibrahim Rasul, and of course some Muslims and non-Muslims on that particular panel, which would now. I think it also the, a major contention is that Sahuk seems to represent the government at a level. How is it that an organization that's not government affiliated, it's not an extension of the government, becomes a representative of the South African government? And I think that was a major legal headache for Durko, is that the government could be implicated and even possibly be brought in by virtue of liability or breach of contract, by the fact that they have South Af- South uh, purports to represent the South African government in their annual protocol contracts that they signed with the Saudi Arabian government. So I think those people looking at it came to realize that there is definitely a problem for the South African government because the Saudi Arabian um, kingdom wants to deal with the, with the Muslims at every country from a ministerial level. And it's easy when it's Muslim countries. It's more difficult when uh, we live in a country like South Africa. So, yes, this was established, and it looks like that they are maybe functioning very shortly. Um, we, we It's a wait and see. You know, a lot of things some always take time, but I think this has been given some sort of a spurt to say that, after this Hajj, they need to be more involved in the Hajj industry and to represent South Africans at that particular level. Remember, um, there's also been high level of dissatisfaction that has come through to the the, 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 the government from South African who judge via maybe direct complaints, even via the consular's office in Jeddah. And yes, uh, I think that we, we we all anxiously awaiting to see how and what changes will be made in the Hajj industry. Apart from that, there's also something I'd like to touch upon, is that Europe and the Americas and Australia for the last two years were not able or, or rather did away with the agencies and the tra- travel operators acting as intermediaries. What they did is they promoted then the whole Saudi branding directly to the Hajj, where you go on to the you go onto the website and you can book a Hajj visa and Umrah, Umrah visa and you would then be forced to deal with their representatives. And like this, uh, two years ago, we heard of the scandal where uh, males and females, unfortunately, were paired together in rooms and uh, I, I, there were some scare stories, no doubt about it. I don't know if this year the same thing materialized or has the service now improved. But what is um, what is clear is that this type of uh, my business mindset about doing away with the middleman and dealing directly with the kingdom of Saudi Arabia via their tour operators, albeit these Indian representatives and be, be it third-party operators who are only in it to make a profit, I think the Saudi mentality is geared towards um this type of approach and then that's doing away with travel agents and, and Hajj organizations like Sahog. Uh, already, already remember, a person is get is able to get into the kingdom of Saudi Arabia without the Saudi visa if, and listen to this, he has a used American or Schengen visa or he has visas from some of these so-called first world, world countries. How, what an insult is it for the Muslim world that you have to submit and have a visa or a passport 
from some of these other countries as if they are the guardians to the to the to the to the kingdom and they are the guardians to the haramain and they the doorkeepers of uh, of our religiosity and our deen so yes um i can understand when you mention these companies organizations that are fleecing taking advantage of where there doesn't seem to be any sincerity there doesn't seem to be any overtures that would make us comfortable to say never mind sometimes the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know the travel agents in this country many a times bent over backwards they even subsidized they even you know they went the extra mile because they knew the people uh, intimately they knew them from socially they understood the dynamics of having a good reputation and a good name in South Africa and that how it will impact you over the years so yes there's been drastic changes in the hajj industry maybe when you know the report finally comes out from saug this year we did year also uh, uh, shafat i think you it became uh, uh, it became widespread that there was a judge who actually wrote a scathing letter mm. against the uh, sahok and against the services that was provided not so much against the travel agent because i think she understood that uh, a lot of this was out of the control of the travel agency and a lot of people were paying huge amounts of money i mean the five days of hajj what shocks me is that it cost 30000 rand as an absolute minimum for a mattress a few meals a few drinks 30000 rand i mean per person so you and your wife per day is costing you something like 12000 rand for you and your wife you could i mean i don't, it's not right to compare it to some of the fancy hotels we find around the world but if you understand what you're getting in terms of service what i fail to understand is that those properties in arafat in the mashair and in mina are wakf properties it does it belongs to the whole muslim umma you and me and the saudi and the yemeni have every right to be there this was something established 1400 years ago and we have for us to pay to get in so that i could maybe put my head down in mina or my sit have a one square foot in arafat i i i can't understand why the charges we can understand i mean a person carries your bag and you give him a 10 riyals and you say thank you for getting my bag and putting it into the taxi that's a service that you're paying for what you can for the for for something that you can see i can't see what i'm getting for 30000 riyals and it you know it takes me back over the years when i started doing hajj in the 1980s how easy things were how cheap things were arafat i mean obviously you know we never paid for these types of services unless um, we 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 were we 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 hooked up or with with the saudi that was providing exceptional service he went out but then a 500 riyals or 1000 riyals for 5 days of hajj was more than generous you would accept it they would reluctantly accept it and you 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 understand there's a high level of gratitude for them it was the service of the hajj what happened to that level of service in the last 50 years in this hajj industry where the saudis that were there were willing to take on anybody and everybody that came for hajj sure there was 300000 people or 500000 people in the 80s that came for hajj but and sure you know uh, we we understand that the saudi government is trying to improve safety people used to die every year if you remember the stories of the jamarats maybe a dozen two dozen three thousand three dozen people could die in a day so it became a bone of contention and then what about the stampedes that we were finding in around the bashair where people were uh, were getting stampeded so yes i understand that the saudi government wants to implement safety security fire fire was a problem in the 80s in the 90s uh, uh, and and they've done taken a lot of effort to make sure because people get killed and people lose their belongings and suddenly their whole hajj is upside down and you know uh, so yes we can understand this but to pay 30000 rand you know I, i still can't understand yes unfortunately this is the reality of the hajj and you know we make sure that there was a time where it was not expensive a person a ordinary person with a ordinary job was able to go for hajj and um, you know and and now things it seems that the hajj has become now for the super rich now absolutely mohammed and uh, there was a composite going around uh, you know on social media and i'll just read it to you perhaps you can comment it says uh, 
it's common knowledge and no secret uh, that the KSA that uh, that the KSA regards the people who identify their lineage as being Indo-Pak as a laborer class, and that Africans are non-Arabs are regarded as uh, lower than Arabs. That elephant in the room is uh, what leads to filthy substandard camps are being provided to Africa. The question is, who is brave enough to address the elephant in the room? And, you know, we know we have certain individuals that want to address the, uh, the, the elephant in the room. But uh, let's uh, talk about, I mean, the, the hypocrisy. I mean, your, your final sermon when Nabi Muhammad Sallallahu said uh, the uh, Arab is not superior to a non-Arab, neither is a non-Arab superior to an Arab. The black man is not superior to a white man, neither is a white man superior to a black man, except in piety. You know, he that is most pious is most high. Uh, your comment as a da'i and looking at this uh, blatant racism and, uh, you know, subjugation, uh, Mohammed. Gee, it's a very deep question. And I'll say this because I've given it a lot of introspection over the years. I've been, alhamdulillah, with the grace of Allah, been many times over to the kingdom. And and I seen how very true your statement is that the South Africans are treated as if we are Indian citizens, but then that's an insult to the Indians as well. Why even bring that into the equation? South Africans are treated like Africans, and I can, uh, you know, it's 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 absolutely an insult. Well, Islam cannot be insulted, but it's it's absolutely it should be rubbished, and we should learn to find mechanisms for us as Muslims today to be able to deal with each other on the same level. And I say this, but I must qualify it and why, you you know, this, this is something we need to consider. And, you know, I always like to add my own spin. Hope that it, it creates an awareness. So, yes, I agree with you 100%. But the next part, what I say, is going to appear to be a bit, um, a, a bit controversial. So what's the first part is, yes, we are treated like second grade citizens in Saudi Arabia without a doubt. But yet in South Africa, when we deal with the Africans in Arafat, in Mina, even the South African who judge in the past, and I hope this is not the case in the recent years, the South African black Muslims that used to come for Hajj, our own people used to treat them in a very different way. And I had and Alim and his wife, I had to deal with an issue many years ago in the early 2000s where they were made to sleep on the floor and the wife lost, had a miscarriage and they were became completely, you know, um, uh, they, uh, they, they felt hopeless in the circumstances because the same people who they thought, my Muslim brothers and sisters, the same people that treated them differently. So I don't want to go into the further details, but I just want to say that even when I seen in Arafat, we normally next to the Tanzanians, and the Tanzanians seem to come there but earlier sometimes, and they tend to spread themselves out in a way that, you know, makes them comfortable, and maybe... They're 50% of the people under the tent, but they're taking up 80% of the space. I've seen that. And when our people come to them and approach them and sometimes want to claim back a little bit of space, it becomes ugly. Sometimes it becomes racist. And um, I feel, you know, for those five or ten hours that we come to Arafat, that may be one of the most difficult tasks is for us to make patience in a 50-degree sun and say, it's my black brother from another part of Africa I, I, I don't want to engage him in a fight. He can see that we're struggling. Sometimes, you know, you, you, a kind word to them changes the whole environment. Take out some of the sweets, the, the, share it with the, with, the, with, the, with the Africans there, from the Tanzanians there, or Ni- Nigerians, whatever the situation. We don't share with the Nigerians, but we do share with some of the other countries. I think Kenya is also there with us. So, yes, we have to understand that it works two ways. We don't like it when another group of people treat us, treats us unfairly. In the same way, we sometimes need to learn that when we deal with the Africans in Mina and in Arafat, then we need to have the same level of respect to them as we afford to our own people uh, in, from South Africa.
Yes, sir, Mohammed. You know, as you make the point, uh, we do have uh, prejudices, and that is a very sad uh, thing indeed. And uh, I mean, uh, we always appoint uh, apartheid. We point to the uh, West. You know, we say, oh, Europe is racist in its very nature. But uh, then you, when you look at uh, you know the subcontinent, the continent where most of us come from, uh, it is the RNA DNA of uh, the roots of that land that you know uh, Hinduism itself. Uh, uh, embosses uh, uh, apartheid. I mean, in in, in the in the uh, you know you look at the Dalit and then you look at the uh, Brahmin and you look at that type of system that the Brahmin is a top class and the Dalit is a lower class and uh, those are uh, you know uh, other than that uh, you know and color caste everything comes in and you know that is uh, ingrained in perhaps uh, even uh, the Indian uh, Muslim that a little bit of that comes through. Now and again, how do we break this uh, barrier then, uh, Muhammad? I mean, we know that Nabi Muhammad Sallallahu gave us, uh, you know, the farewell uh, uh, pilgrimage, again, the final message. And we uh, suddenly, you know, most of us have put that under file 13. Uh, perhaps uh, we have succumbed to what we call the selective sunnah syndrome. Whatever suits up, suits us, we will implement that. What it doesn't do, we put it under file 13. And, you know, I don't know. How do you put that into order as a community but as an individual you ne- we need to do a lot of introspection now Mohammed. great question great question and i think the problem starts long before india and our grandfathers and great grandfathers days in india see when we read the story of iblis and shaitan in the quran and his interaction with adam salam he tells Allah, I am better than Adam. Iblis says this, I am better. You have created me, Allah, you have created me from fire. Already he saw you and created him from sand. Already he saw the differences for something to use to his advantage. I am better than you because of X, Y, and Z. You know, even to a person looking at it who think to yourself, he's created differently doesn't mean that he is different in or he's superior it's just different like men and women are created uh differently men have certain roles responsibilities the physiological being is different from a man's physiological being it doesn't make it the inequality shouldn't exist now similarly shaitan part of his plot is to make us these types of racist people and yes India was known for its racism. Even in the Indian system, when everybody was considered to be Indian, they have the caste system. And we know about the caste system. The caste system was outlawed, but yet till today, I mean, I've been to India many times. It's as if the caste system is still prevalent because it is part of their religion. The Hindu religion requires that a person who cannot wash the feces or pick up the poo in the bathroom except that he is a Dalit and he's not allowed, that Dalit is not allowed to go to the same temple as the Brahmins and for the business, uh, the business class of, uh, of India and they have these religious rules and no matter what legislation they put into place the floor of the floor is already established in the DNA of the Indians and one of the reasons they say that the Dalits are beginning to accept Islam in India is because they appreciate that Islam does not openly have a sense of racism. That means, as Hindus, they were not allowed to go to the temples of their masters, but as Muslims, if they embrace Islam, they already ostracized. So embracing Islam would mean that they would just be ostracized like they were previously ostracized, but now they are welcome into a Muslim community. They are now taught that we all pray next to each other, whether you're the king or you're the mayor, or you, the president, or you, the Dalit, and you're all going to stand next to each other, shoulder to shoulder. And this is what Islam came to eradicate. And yet we know our history has been darkened by the slave trade in Africa. And it's unfortunate to hear how many times the Muslims were implicated in the slave trade. Islam teaches you that the only time you can acquire a slave is as a result of a prisoner of war. This was the custom of the warring tribes, nations, countries, thousand years ago. That they, if you lose the battle, you lose your belongings, you lose your right to freedom, if you are not already killed in the battle. So 
The victor then gets the spoils of war, which would include this. So the Muslims never innovated anything. All they did is they dealt with the situation like the non-Muslims dealt with the situation. And you could not, you could not acquire a slave by imprisoning somebody for whatever reason, except that the person came out as and was defeated in a war battle. So racism, the caste system, the slavery is the evil underbelly of our society and yet goes against the very foundation and existence. Look at the stories of the Sahabas, how the slaves then became the masters, so to speak. How the slaves, the person who was at the bottom, then became, in one simple example, is the example of Bilal, radiallahu anhu, who was a slave at one stage, who had a hot burning rock placed on his chest in the deserts of Mecca. And 10 years later, 15 years later, came back to Mecca and had the honor of making the Adhan on top of the Kaaba. So from that low level was given a level that other Sahaba, free Sahaba, were envious, envious in a good way and proud to say this is the this is the the, the, the the respect and honor that Islam has given to anybody and everybody, even if you are an Ethiopian slave. Muhammad, you know, so much to think of, uh, like I was just looking deep into the whole thing, but, uh, you know, alhamdulillah, you know, that's why it's so important as an individual uh, for us to have shutters, you know, when we find uh, certain individuals uh, that are toxic, for us to just, uh, you know, lock the gate and throw the keys away because, you know, just ignore the individual uh, than to, you know, engage into this. And uh, we're looking at uh, so many, so much of negativity surrounding us. We need uh, to, uh, you know, learn to get into our own space and connect with the reality and connect with the divine. Otherwise, uh, you know, we'll be uh, consumed uh, by this uh, tsunami. Your thoughts, uh, Mohammed? No, without a doubt. Without a doubt. I think Islam is the guiding principle for us as Muslims. Some of us, alhamdulillah, Allah placed us in Muslim homes. Some of us embraced Islam even after being brought up into non-Muslim parents. Some of us, you know, the journeys are varied, how people come into Islam. But the one thing, the one thread that unites us is the blessing of Islam. So we should consider our Muslims across the world as our brethren. And, you know, the Islamic injunctions related to the brotherhood and the of Islam is, is, is as if it's wajib and compulsory for us to do that. So, yes, I think that, you know, we need to change our mentality. The excuse about the apartheid was valid maybe until few many years ago where, you know, we were psychologically conditioned to think of people in different ways. But I think we should not have the excuse as Muslims at all. And number two, even if we excuse our parents, for having that mentality, we should now think of things in a very different and very brotherly approach. I mean, alhamdulillah, today, I think the most followed person for this year's Hajj was a Christian revert to Islam pastor who many thousands of people accepted Islam with him in his church a few months ago. Alhamdulillah, there was many posts. It went viral on many channels. I was shocked to see how viral it became. Posts in the Europe, posts in the Far East was spoke about this man and his journey to Islam and they showcased him in many ways. And Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah, we should we didn't see him as a black brother. We saw him as our brother. Like that, we should be proud about the fact. You know, it comes back to an Arabic uh, 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 Islamic theory uh, called Al-Wala Al-Bara that you love someone or something for the sake of Allah and you hate someone and something for the sake of Allah. So in other words, if you have to choose between this black pastor, brother of ours that embraced Islam and one soccer fan, uh, soccer, soccer star on the other side, we should have a love for our Muslim brother and we should have a hatred for Christian soccer star on the other side. So if I'm, if I get two invitations from any of them, one invitation from here and one invitation from there, I should readily accept and run towards my Muslim brother instead of favoring the, a non-Muslim over uh, a Muslim. So 
this is this is the mentality that we need to have as Muslims, that we need to change our ma- mindset. It's well and good that we have a crutch, and that's the apartheid era that existed for so many years. And yes, we did see, unfortunately, in the masjids, certain things, in our homes, in our businesses, in our workplaces, on the street, we did see discrimination amongst our own people, own Muslim people. And Allah forgive them for that. Difficult situation and, and difficult circumstances, and we're not here to throw uh, blame on anybody. What we are here to do is to have islah and reformation of our own selves so that we can continue to improve our own condition, that when we meet Allah, we can have removed ourselves from this mentality and this mindset. Yeah, you know, well said there. Also, uh, when you looked at uh, the reversion of this brother, you know, he already uh, informed his uh, congregants uh, to wear topi and to wear, wear full kurta and so forth. And, uh, you know, it so happened that uh, the pedal jamaat had to be in his vicinity and they went to see him because someone said, hey, you know, there's someone that working just like you. Uh, they look just like you with white and, and then they went and he told them, uh, you know, we've been waiting for you all to come and uh, talk to us. And subsequently, uh, the brother that was uh, the Amir there uh, got all the other Dawah organizations involved, you know, and all came in there and helped each other. And it was uh, nice to see the synergy between, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the Muslims uh, of, uh, you know, doing Dawah at different levels. But when it came to giving or uh, giving the message here, they all got together and they did what they had to do. And some, uh, you know, uh, some uh, individuals that are very close to you and I had actually taken uh, this pastor and uh, given him grooming for three days uh, on Hajj rituals and so forth. So Alhamdulillah, brilliant story indeed. And as you said, it's amazing to see that he's become a whole a worldwide sensation, a worldwide hit from India to uh, Indonesia, from Indo- Indonesia to uh, name the country, the Australia and uh, UK and the US, everyone has embraced and celebrated the the brother as we come into, you know, they say uh, it's in the laps of our mothers that the society is reared or the future generation is reared. The institution of marriage keeps a society together. The institution of marriage keeps a society sober. It is the institution of marriage that keeps a country together. It is the institution of marriage that creates blessings and beautiful children, you know, and then we're talking about our topic, new divorce laws coming to South Africa. But first, uh, Mohammed, I want you to emboss how important that this insti- institution of marriage should be there and that a uh, divorce should be the last resort, uh, Mohammed. Shafat, many people don't know the main cause of divorce in this country is marriage. But that's on a lighter note. <laughs> you too. Yeah, the way you spoke there, I said, hey, I don't have to send him to Fort Napier. Go ahead. (laughs) No, 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 no. I think from an Islamic perspective, we all understand the value of marriage. If you look at other religions and the the fragmentation and the disintegration of their religions is primarily as a result of their failure to abide by the injunctions of their religion. And more importantly, Today we find that the institution of marriage has been disparaged. People who get married are considered to be the weaklings. People who get married are considered to be those people that are bound down, bound down in this way that they don't have the freedoms to do as they please. They don't have the freedoms of having open relationships. All these terms and these animalistic ideas emanated in the last century it's unfortunate that you know even if i looked another day i was i was was just looking at a simple thing like the hats christians were forced to wear hats until 100 years ago so you know in some churches like the mormons and you know the quakers the hats are part and parcel of their daily life forget the churches today you find that even the hats have evolved uh women's head covering has evolved to the extent that it's no longer a, a, a religious requirement and just that was just one aspect one aspect to see how the situation has deteriorated in in, in all the other religions and uh, we uh, we make dua that Islam continues to be strong and Islam continues to 
to to to influence us in terms of our everyday existence, whether it's our recreation, whether it's our work, our relationships. And marriage has always been considered to be something very noble and something that has part and parcel of our religion. Uh, as the hadith goes, Andikahum in Sinnati. I think everybody knows that hadith. We hear it at every nikah. The Bissalasim has said that um, getting married is part of my sunnah. So we as Sunnis, we embrace the sunnah to the extent that we know and we understand the value of having it done in accordance with Islamic principles and the value of having uh, our wholesome family environment. And yes, um, you know, we have to respect and we have to encourage um, the, the youngsters to get married and to be mindful of their responsibilities between the spouses. Males have a responsibility towards the females and the females have a responsibility to the males. It is set out for us in the Quran and the Sunnah. And just the other day, I came across something so beautiful that if each spouse just honors and respects their role and responsibilities, the marriage undoubtedly will be a success. So today we have become unfortunately bad spouses because we have been removed or we have removed ourselves from the Islamic teachings. But I hope and pray that, you know, first of all, that we continue till the day of Kiamat to encourage our youngsters. I don't know if a time will come, Shafat. We've seen so many things happening. I don't know if a time will come. I don't know if you've seen it where we, we would see Muslim couples hook up and live together like the Christians are beginning to do already, that they live together for many years and there is absolutely no talk of getting married. It was It is as if they live this relationship like how in a prostitution relationship, and, and you know, it's unkind maybe to use these harsh terms, but I mean, when he's finished and done with her, in any marriage as well, you, you may get tired of a person for whatever reason, but in a case where there is no marital relationship, you just pack your things and you move on and you find somebody that's willing to take you in and you continue to live your life. So, you know, we, we know it exists in the Christian, uh, amongst Christians, not part of the religion, but amongst Christians, we know it exists. I haven't heard of it, or maybe, you know, I haven't really put my ear to the ground, but I hope and pray that it never is a becoming, it never becomes something that the youth would even think about. Absolutely. May Allah, uh, you know, safeguard them and alhamdulillah, the importance of uh, addressing issues uh, with them, you know, getting the youth uh, to listen uh, to the commandments of, you know, obeying Allah, obeying his messenger, and perhaps, uh, you know, uh, when you find them uh, being encouraged, because they are, most of them have been captured uh, by, uh, you know, the so-called Google culture, and uh, then, uh, you know, what the West is uh, uh, spewing out, uh, and what the leadership of the world is, uh, you know, in the hands of the dregs of society, and when it in the hands of the wrong people, you know what's going on, uh, Muhammad. So, you know, it's uh, very important for elders, even those that are given the amana of being, uh, you know, in leadership position to get hold of the youth and uh, to, you know, perhaps, you know, keep them in the house of Islam with a lot of TLC because you have to look at uh, the conditions around them is very volatile, uh, Muhammad. Yes, I think we, you know, the, the thing is we have, the societal pressure, which is sometimes good for us. So so I'm just thinking as you're talking now, why is it that people maybe don't love together is because they're afraid of the scandal and the backlash and, you know, the imam coming to have a word with you and people uh, ostracizing you from the community. So in a way, this type of societal behavior is good in that it keeps us in check. And, you know, with all the challenges of today nowadays, in fact, I mean, over and above today, you have to even consider, you know, sending your spouse for these tests, whether to see that this person has has AIDS or something. And, you know, in, in many countries around the world, it seems to be the norm. It, it, what do you call it? Sexually transmitted diseases and these types of things. So, I, I, you know, first it may seem a stark reality and something that we shocked to learn about. But in time to come, it seems that, you know, we have to become so cautious. Who are we giving our children to? Already, you know, I've, I did hear some stories about 
that this prospective spouse, once they get they got married, came to find out that the spouse was homosexual and he had no inclination and no feelings for his spouse, and that as a result of which now the whole marriage then breaks up, or you have some weird, you know, weird, weird uh, uh, issues, uh, and uh, you know the husband hasn't worked a day in his life he plays tv games his whole life he doesn't know how to be a husband he doesn't know how to look after his spouse what will happen when he becomes a father is his condition going to become worse unfortunately we're living in an era that the issues that we have faced nowadays we we our forefathers never had to contend with these types of issues absolutely mohammed and it's uh, quite frightening to hear things uh, like that do happen and you know that's why uh, i think uh, you know it's important to even i don't know to have a, uh, a psychological report from either side of the uh, you know couples to see where the family roots and whether they had uh, you know uh, some mental issues and so this and that uh, what's your views on that I, I, you know, I would support it. You know, people may argue that you know, Islamically, it's never a requirement to do these things. But I'll say, you know what? I've seen situations where parents were silent about the children's drug addiction. They never mentioned it to a prospective spouse. Prospective spouse came in, and he or she had a few words, and maybe they had a few conversations in between. They get married, and a few weeks down the line. Uh, the, the child relapses, the spouse relapses, and then suddenly the other spouse came to find out that, you know what, my husband is actually a drug addict. I wouldn't want for any of my children or even my uh, son-in-law or daughter-in-law to be a drug addict because I know that it has harms that may or um, for years you could be consequences. And, you know, if I'm now chaperoning my kids everywhere to make sure that I'm keeping them away from harm's way, Shouldn't I be just as cautious, if not more cautious, about a prospective suitor, whether he actually ticks all the boxes psychologically, he doesn't suffer from issues that would, you know, that could be genetic. So, you know, there could be psychological issues that he's acquired and this type of uh, behavior could be passed on to the children or that he could have violent tendencies that, you know, emanate from time to time. I think a psychological report is, is valid. It's important. Uh, they, they should maybe, maybe you know, uh, our our Muslim organizations can give us some sort of a checklist that send him for a drug test, make sure that he does not have any sexually transmitted diseases. Uh, these things, you know, are transferable between spouses, and some of them means that you will be barren and you will not be able to have children. And it will teach men to be more responsible. And it will teach them that, listen, the day I get married, I may have issues. If my wife finds out and she will find out because uh, uh, you know uh, she's going to be doing a test if she finds out that i'm a drug addict could maybe come public knowledge and you know uh, I, i don't want to be living this life it may serve as some sort of a deterrent to prevent youngsters from 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 doing crazy things in their teenagers so yes i think it's important as much as it's not particularly uh, uh, cannot be found that it's an islamic requirement I think you know spouses need to be fully aware of what they're getting involved in, and inshallah, you know that would then prevent then a lot of disappointment and a lot of grief in years to come. That's why it's important, you know, of getting married in the community or someone, you know, when the elders find you someone and you get married because you know that's uh, tried and tested. But uh, you know, today's uh, time, uh, you find the youngsters going out and uh, they'll tell, no, you know, I saw this individual and to marry them, and sometimes uh, they come from un- very unsavory backgrounds, and that's where the danger is. Marriages like that don't last, uh, Muhammad. Sure, I don't know if me and you are qualified to answer this question. All right. Yeah. You're, <laughs> but, right. <laughs> no, 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 no. But okay. Without yeah. a doubt, you have there is challenges even getting married in your own street. There's challenges getting married in the next town. And imagine how much more challenges there will be if you get married to a spouse from across the world. So, uh, you know, it could be looked at from many different angles. It could be looked at is something that it's going to be an exciting learning experience and the differences are going to bring us closer together and sometimes you're going to walk into a european restaurant and she's going to order in german or in scottish 
or in uh, local dialect and I'm going to admire her knowledge and uh, or vice versa. So uh, I, I think that, you know, Islam allows for this type of diversity. And uh, we know that the wife of Nabi Salasa, Maria, the Coptic, was Egyptian and obviously had a different um, uh, culture. And, you know, it caused a stir even in the people of Medina. But um, it was a lesson for us that sometimes to go outside the gum is, uh, is, 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 is okay, you know. And especially if it's a means of dawah where you know that um, the gum uh, or, or that, that, that the new family may embrace Islam over and above the fact that this person is embracing Islam. You could introduce Islam to a family and as a result of which a small community. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen many a times. And um, we should, at the end of the day, be um, be good examples uh, of, of Muslims in the, to the extent that, you know, that even if we marry locally or internationally, we're always conscious that our approach in life and our dawah and our amals can lead people to accept Islam. So marriage is one of the ways that you can accept Islam. Yeah, it's a way of uh, cementing. And, you know, when you marry an individual, you don't only marry that individual, you marry the whole uh, family and you may be marrying the clan and you bring them into the house of Islam. And uh, that is important. Well, uh, Muhammad, uh, we're moving on to our topic uh, proper here. Cabinet has approved the submission of a of the draft divorce amendment bill to Parliament. The bill was approved a few weeks ago, and uh, it seeks to uh, do the amendment, uh, the amendment, uh, the Divorce Act of 1997. What's going on here, Muhammad? Yes, uh, Shabbat, you know, we need at least two hours to be able to properly ventilate the issues that we need to get discussed every bi-weekly. But uh, alhamdulillah, I think we've made it to a uh, uh, key discussion, and that's new divorce laws. So yes, just to qualify, it doesn't affect your legal position regarding, for example, the inheritances, regarding recognitions of marriage. The status quo will remain the same regarding, you know, certain uh, where, where your Muslim marriages were, where they were, is where they still are, except for what is considered to be new additions to the Divorce Act. So remember, the Divorce Act was previously applicable to people that were married, and uh, firstly, they were married in the, at the home affair, affairs, and their marriage was registered, and then there was extensions where black tra- traditional marriages are recognized, um, I, unfortunately, we Muslims have been involved in this whole Muslim personal law debate for over 20 years, and it seems that we were not able to reach a solution as the ulama, as the legal representatives. There was so much discussion, there's so much abuse between themselves and the pamphlets and literature that got issued. We as a layman, when we sat back and we looked at it, we thought to ourselves, is this mayhem ever going to end? Now, moving on, it appears that uh, Mr. Hanif Hendricks, Mohammed Hanif Hendricks from the Al Jamaa Party, has um, has submitted to Parliament certain mechanisms to assist us in Muslim marriages to get recognition at a particular level. Um, you know, we I think the Hindus, the Tamils have their customary marriages, and in in time to come also seem to be suffering the same fate as we are currently. And in time to come, maybe they would make certain changes. So for us, it means that once uh, brought into legislation, that means the president needs to sign it off still. So it's in that window phase before signing off and coming into operation that uh, the law, the legal or the divorce courts would now be in a position to declare uh, recognition of a Muslim marriage and as a result of which certain orders will be granted um, for in Muslim marriages. Uh, Mohammed, and then, uh, you know, uh, the uh, Quran is explicit, uh, explicit about divorce and, uh, you know, then the, the whole jurisprudence in uh, Sharia where, you know, the muftis and uh, the ulama are involved. And uh, the argument goes uh, that uh, the circular courts are not uh, primed to handle 
delusionment of uh, marriage in Islam. Uh, your reaction? Okay, firstly, we've done away with circular courts. All our courts are now square, so we shouldn't be having an issue there. <laughs> Na- <laughs> nonetheless. You're going to square everything up, okay? <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll cube it for you. If I don't give my spin here, then I think the people are going to assume that this attorney has got no humor. And uh, no, no, it's just... a talk. I mean, I mean, I'm enjoying you. I mean, uh, this is what we need. We need to have a little bit of uh, humor there, but uh, it's a serious issue. <laughs> so, <laughs> this, see, now, um, so just to just to answer your question, and I know the time is short, so we're going to try to squeeze in as much as we can. So just to answer your question, remember, only in certain instances are courts allowed to issue a talaq. By and large, we have an implementation where the authority of issuing the talaq is the sole right and responsibility of the husband. A woman can issue a thousand talaqs. It's not equal to one talaq of the husband. So yes, there are fundamental rules that still govern us, that still require for the male to issue the talaq in circumstances that warrants it, and no court can remove that responsibility and right from him. Uh, Number two, there are circumstances from the Sharia where a woman in an unhappy marriage could approach a qadi, could approach a religious authority, could could approach a a responsible court of law. And you know, this is this is this is highlighted to the extent that whether a fatwa will be issued to say that your regional court, your regional divorce court, or your high court of South Africa has any jurisdiction to issue a talaq on behalf of the husband is going to be very interesting. It's going to be very interesting for a legal person like myself and somebody involved with these types of things. How will they look at an, a judgment and an order in the face of the fact that Islam and the laws that are bound in Islam are compulsory for us. And the Quran makes it very clear in a number of ayats, one of which is, And the person that judges other than the law of Allah, for verily he is a disbeliever. So there is serious consequences. And yes, courts will be empowered in terms of certain divorce, uh, in terms of the amendments to the divorce law, to, for example, to protect the mechanism and the welfare of minor and dependent children. And yes, maybe in the past, minor children were not considered in a talaq situation, and, you know, the husband and wife went their separate ways, and the, in this case, it may be necessary for this issue to be brought before a court, and a court will have necessary jurisdiction to say, well, I'm now going to order that the father has equal custody. In the past, you know, they, you, you'd, find, you'd find that a wife would assume the custody because the marriage was not recognized and she was considered to be the primary caregiver and the poor husband, you know, he would get like, you can see, of the the whole relationship. So yes, one of the mechanisms, one of the objectives is to provide a mechanism for the safeguarding of minor children. And then, of course, the contentious issue is the redistribution of assets on the dissolution of a Muslim marriage, which includes the forfeiture of patrimonial benefits um, of a Muslim marriage. In other words, a court could say one of two things. A court could say that uh, I'm the spouse needs to forfeit his entitlement in this marriage because of the fact that he was conducting himself in an adulterous relationship or he had a total disregard for his wife and her safety and her you know her, her, her welfare in the last 10 years of their marriage so there's a forfeiture of benefits or even the opposite there could be a redistribution of assets and remember you know from a financial perspective uh, uh, people get married Islamically and they don't want to get married in court is because they believe that the, the Sunnah and the Islamic way of doing things is that what his is his and what hers is hers and that is actually the so if you get caught married you're going to either have to get an anti-nuptial contract or you're going to have to have to suffer 
the consequences of having a joint estate and ha- that has its consequences as well because should one party get into financial trouble um, it would then affect the estate of both the spouses yes sir mohammed uh, you know you uh, i mean you 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 gave the answer and you got yourself in in a position where you can even give us a parting word uh, this evening and you know i wanted to talk about a scenario of you know so many um, you know, senior couples getting divorced. I mean, having grandchildren in certain instances, but they still want to divorce. I mean, what is the thinking behind that, Mohammed? You see, they say marriage is grand, but a divorce is hundred grand. Okay, I got yes. it. <laughs> no, no, you know I got the it. thing. Mm. You got <laughs> the thing is, um, I, 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 I just just this week I do maybe counsel somebody regarding a recent divorce of his over the weekend and I mentioned to him I said you never know how long your marriage is set out to last and because it ends in disappointment it doesn't mean it was a disappointing marriage you could have been married for 10 years and maybe in your ninth year or 10th year you actually now and now begin to show signs of wear and tear and as a result of which you forget about the eight years of marital bliss Yes, I think sometimes we need to remember that even in the time of the Sahaba, uh, divorce was despised on, but it was practiced amongst the Sahaba. So nobody is uh, of that angelic quality that we're able to deal with uh, life and deal with the issues as if it doesn't exist. Yes. You know, if you're in a bad marriage, it affects you as a person, it affects your ibadat, it affects your work situation, it affects your social relationships with other people, and sometimes you just want to get out of a toxic relationship, and that that could very well be the case. But at the end of the day, we make shukr to Allah for the good years and the blessings and for the children and for the barakah and for the good times that we have. We forget that we, you know, we're divorcing our wife now, but a few years ago, we went for Hajj, we enjoyed the beautiful days of Arafat, we made a couple of Umrahs, we've got some lovely children, all of which would not have been possible if you do not get married to the spouse. So Allah, in His wisdom, gives you a spouse, and sometimes you are blessed to have that spouse till you die, and even in Jannah. And you know, people <laughs> people like to make light of the situation that, oh, you mean I'm going to see my wife again in Jannah? You know, I was like hoping that by my death, I'll finally be able to get rid of her once and for all. But I think, you know, if we put aside the lightheartedness, how beautiful it will be for us to experience. And of course, Jannah doesn't have the challenges that we have in the dunya. She's not going to get concerned about where you are and why was that phone call taking so long and why did you, you know, all these issues don't exist in Jannah. It's only going to be plus. It's only going to be happiness. So, yes, we firstly, let's make dua that we reach Jannah. And as a result of which, let's, uh, let's let's make dua that we have our spouses in Jannah. How much more beautiful is beautiful as the wives of Jannah are. The, the, your, your own wife in this dunya is going to be the queen. She's going to be the most beautiful of the land. And you know, like that, some words of encouragement for us that to say, you know, um, the, this dunya is just a test. It's just a fitna. We have to then we have these challenges, but we must always be practical Muslims and look at things from a diplomatic perspective, look at things from a pragmatic perspective and say, you know what, we are Muslims and we think as Muslims. Uh, you know, attorney Hafez Muhammad Kubadia, brilliant evening with you. Alhamdulillah, really, uh, you know, gave us a spiritual insight and gave us the legal implications and so forth. And Alhamdulillah, also counseling his uh, clients uh, with a lot of hikmah, which he uh, harvested through his, yeah, uh, many, not many years. Sure, I mean, he's not an old man, he's still a young man, but with his many experiences he had. Uh, Muhammad, uh, your parting words uh, this evening? Gee, once again, you know, we covered a, v- a wide variety of topics. Alhamdulillah, Allah gave us that opportunity to be able to present some of these topics. Sometimes it's food for thought for people that die in similar circumstances. Sometimes it's food for thought for people that don't look at things from the opposite or from a different perspective. Uh, we pray Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepts our effort 
and you know we we make dua that our muslims as muslims we can continue to grow and we can have you know we spoke about hajj that our hajj must become easy the hajj must become cheaper the hajj must bring you a unity and brotherhood whether it's our brother from uh, from from a location or it's my brother from the western cape or my brother from an afflu- influential and affluent area this is these are we are all brothers in this this religion when we stand on arafat we are totally equal let's get rid of the big lesson of arafat that we must sometimes is the equality in our in our in 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 race and equality in in all other ex- aspects except our taqwa allah judges us in accordance with our, our, our taqwa wa ma alayna illa al-balagh assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh Waalaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh to our attorney Hafiz Muhammad Kubadia. Time for us to go to the uh, yeah for the azan and inshallah we will continue, we will after, continue that. after that.